Part third of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. The Lighthouse, Chapter 6. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part third, The Lighthouse, Chapter 6. The declining sun had shifted the shadows from west to east amongst the houses of the town. It had shifted them upon the whole extent of the immense campo, with the white walls of its haciendas on the knolls dominating the green distances, with its grass-thatched ranches crouching in the folds of ground by the banks of streams, with the dark islands of clustered trees on a clear sea of grass, and the precipitous range of the Cordillera, immense and motionless, emerging from the billows of the lower forests like the barren coast of a land of giants. The sunset rays striking the snow-slope of Higuerota from afar gave it an air of rosy youth, while the serrated mass of distant peaks remained black, as if calcined in the fiery radiance. The undulating surface of the forest seemed powdered with pale gold dust, and away there beyond Rinson, hidden from the town by two wooded spurs, the rocks of the San Tome gorge, with the flat wall of the mountain itself crowned by gigantic ferns, took on warm tones of brown and yellow, with red rusty streaks and the dark green clumps of bushes rooted in crevices. From the plain, the stamp sheds and the houses of the mine appeared dark and small, high up, like the nests of birds clustered on the ledges of a cliff. The zigzag paths resembled faint tracings scratched on the wall of a cyclopean blockhouse. To the two sereños of the mine on patrol duty, strolling carbine in hand and watchful eyes in the shade of the trees lining the stream near the bridge, Don Pepe, descending the path from the upper plateau, appeared no bigger than a large beetle. With his air of aimless, insect-like going to and fro upon the face of the rock, Don Pepe's figure kept on descending steadily and when, near the bottom, sank at last behind the roofs of storehouses, forges and workshops. For a time the pair of sereños strolled back and forth before the bridge, on which they had stopped a horseman holding a large white envelope in his hand. Then Don Pepe, emerging in the village street from amongst the houses, not a stone's throw from the frontier bridge, approached, striding in white dark trousers tucked into boots, a white linen jacket, sabre at his side and revolver at his belt. In this disturbed time, nothing could find the Senor Gubernador with his boots off, as the saying is. At a slight nod from one of the Serenos, the man, a messenger from the town, dismounted and crossed the bridge, leading his horse by the bridle. Don Pepe received the letter from his other hand, slapped his left hand and his hips in succession, feeling for his spectacle case. After settling the heavy, silver-mounted affair astride his nose and adjusting it carefully behind his ears, he opened the envelope, holding it up about a foot in front of his eyes. The paper he pulled out contained some three lines of writing. He looked at them for a long time. His grey moustache moved slightly up and down, and the wrinkles radiating at the corners of his eyes ran together. He nodded serenely. Bueno, he said, there is no answer. Then, in his quiet, kindly way, he engaged in a cautious conversation with the man, who was willing to talk cheerily as if something lucky had happened to him recently. 
He had seen from a distance Sotillo's infantry camped along the shore of the harbour on each side of the custom house. They had done no damage to the buildings. The foreigners of the railway remained shut up within the yards. They were no longer anxious to shoot poor people. He cursed the foreigners. Then he reported Montero's entry and the rumours of the town. The poor were going to be made rich now. That was very good. More he did not know and breaking into propitiatory smiles, he intimated that he was hungry and thirsty. The old major directed him to go to the alcade of the first village. The man rode off, and Don Pepe, striding slowly in the direction of a little wooden belfry, looked over a hedge into a little garden, and saw Father Roman sitting in a white hammock slung between two orange trees in front of the presbytery. An enormous tamarind shaded with its dark foliage the whole white frame-house. A young Indian girl with long hair, big eyes and small hands and feet carried out a wooden chair while a thin old woman, crabbed and vigilant, watched her all the time from the veranda. Don Pepe sat down in the chair and lighted a cigar. The priest drew in an immense quantity of snuff out of the hollow of his palm. On his reddish-brown face worn, hollowed as if crumbled, the eyes, fresh and candid, sparkled like two black diamonds. Don Pepe, in a mild and humorous voice, informed Father Roman that Pedrito Montero, by the hand of Senor Fuentes, had asked him on what terms he would surrender the mine in proper working order to a legally constituted commission of patriotic citizens, escorted by a small military force. The priest cast his eyes up to heaven. However, Don Pepe continued, the mozo who brought the letter said that Don Carlos Gould was alive, and so far unmolested. Father Roman expressed in a few words his thankfulness at hearing of the Senor Administrador's safety. The hour of oration had gone by in the silvery ringing of a bell in the little belfry. The belt of forest closing the entrance of the valley stood like a screen between the low sun and the street of the village. At the other end of the rocky gorge, between the walls of basalt and granite, a forest-clad mountain, hiding all the range from the San Tome dwellers, rose steeply, lighted up and leafy to the very top. Three small rosy clouds hung motionless overhead in the great depth of blue. Knots of people sat in the street between the wattled huts. Before the casa of the Alcade, the foremen of the night shift, already assembled to lead their men, squatted on the ground in a circle of leather skull caps and, bowing their bronze backs, were passing round the gourd of Mate. The mozo from the town, having fastened his horse to a wooden post before the door, was telling them the news of Salaco as the blackened gourd of the decoction passed from hand to hand. The grave Alcade himself in a white waistcloth and a flowered chintz gown with sleeves, open wide upon his naked stout person with an effect of a gaudy bathing robe, stood by wearing a rough beaver hat at the back of his head and grasping a tall staff with a silver knob in his hand. These insignia of his dignity had been conferred upon him by the administration of the mine, the fountain of honour, of prosperity and peace. He had been one of the first immigrants into this valley. 
his sons and sons-in-law worked within the mountain, which seemed with its treasure to pour down the thundering ore-shoots of the upper mesa, the gifts of well-being, security and justice upon the toilers. He listened to the news from the town with curiosity and indifference, as if concerning another world than his own. And it was true that they appeared to him so. In a very few years, the sense of belonging to a powerful organisation had been developed in these harassed, half-wild Indians. They were proud of and attached to the mine. It had secured their confidence and belief. They invested it with a protecting and invincible virtue, as though it were a fetish made by their own hands, for they were ignorant, and in other respects did not differ appreciably from the rest of mankind, which puts infinite trust in its own creations. It never entered the Alcade's head that the mine could fail in its protection and force. Politics were good enough for the people of the town and the campo. His yellow round face with wide nostrils and motionless in expression resembled a fierce full moon. He listened to the excited vaporings of the moza without misgivings, without surprise, without any active sentiment whatever. Padre Roman sat dejectedly balancing himself, his feet just touching the ground, his hands gripping the edge of the hammock. With less confidence, but as ignorant as his flock, he asked the Major what did he think was going to happen now. Don Pepe, bolt upright in the chair, folded his hands peacefully on the hilt of his sword, standing perpendicular between his thighs, and answered that he did not know. The mine could be defended against any force likely to be sent to take possession. On the other hand, from the arid character of the valley when the regular supplies from the campo had been cut off, the population of the three villages could be starved into submission. Don Pepe exposed these contingencies with serenity to Father Roman, who, as an old campaigner, was able to understand the reasoning of a military man. They talked with simplicity and directness. Father Roman was saddened at the idea of his flock being scattered or else enslaved. He had no illusions as to their fate, not from penetration, but from long experience of political atrocities which seemed to him fatal and unavoidable in the life of a state. The working of the usual public institutions presented itself to him most distinctly as a series of calamities overtaking private individuals, and flowing logically from each other through haste, revenge, folly and rapacity, as though they had been part of a divine dispensation. Father Roman's clear-sightedness was served by an uninformed intelligence, but his heart, preserving its tenderness among scenes of carnage, spoliation and violence, abhorred these calamities the more as his association with the victims was closer. He entertained towards the Indians of the valley feelings of paternal scorn. He had been marrying, baptising, confessing, absolving and burying the workers of the San Tome mine with dignity and unction for five years or more, and he believed in the sacredness of these ministrations which made them his own in a spiritual sense. They were dear to his sacerdotal supremacy. Mrs. Gould's earnest interest in the concerns of these people enhanced their importance in the priest's eyes, because it really augmented his own. When talking over with her the innumerable Marias and Brigidas of the villages, he felt his own humanity expand. 
Padre Roman was incapable of fanaticism to an almost reprehensible degree. The English Signora was evidently a heretic, but at the same time she seemed to him wonderful and angelic. Whenever that confused state of his feelings occurred to him, while strolling, for instance, his breviary under his arm in the wide shade of the tamarind, he would stop short to inhale with a strong snuffling noise a large quantity of snuff and shake his head profoundly. At the thought of what might befall the illustrious Signora presently, he became gradually overcome with dismay. He voiced it in an agitated murmur. Even Don Pepe lost his serenity for a moment. He leaned forward stiffly. Listen, Padre, the very fact that those thieving macaques in Salaco are trying to find out the price of my honour proves that Signor Don Carlos and all in the Casa Gould are safe. As to my honour, that also is safe, as every man, woman and child knows. But the Negro liberals who have snatched the town by surprise do not know that. Bueno, let them sit and wait. While they wait, they can do no harm. And he regained his composure. He regained it easily, because whatever happened, his honour as an old officer of Paez was safe. He had promised Charles Gould that at the approach of an armed force he would defend the gorge just long enough to give himself time to destroy scientifically the whole plant, buildings and workshops of the mine with heavy charges of dynamite, block with ruins the main tunnel, break down the pathways, blow up the dam of the water power, shatter the famous Gould concession into fragments flying sky-high out of a horrified world. The mine had got hold of Charles Gould with a grip as deadly as ever it had laid upon his father. But this extreme resolution had seemed to Don Pepe the most natural thing in the world. His measures had been taken with judgment. Everything was prepared with a careful completeness. And Don Pepe folded his hands pacifically on his sword-hilt and nodded at the priest. In his excitement, Father Roman had flung snuff in handfuls at his face and all besmeared with tobacco, round-eyed, and beside himself had got out of the hammock to walk about, uttering exclamations. Don Pepe stroked his grey and pendant moustache, whose fine ends hung far below the clean-cut line of his jaw, and spoke with a conscious pride in his reputation. So, Padre, I don't know what will happen, but I know that as long as I am here, Don Carlos can speak to that macaque Pedrito Montero and threaten the destruction of the mine with perfect assurance that he will be taken seriously, for people know me. He began to turn the cigar in his lips a little nervously and went on. But that is talk, good for the politicos. I am a military man. I do not know what may happen, but I know what ought to be done. The mine should march upon the town with guns, axes, knives tied up to sticks, por Dios. That is what should be done, only. His folded hands twitched on the hilt. The cigar turned faster in the corner of his lips. And who should lead but I? Unfortunately, observe, I have given my word of honour to Don Carlos not to let the mine fall into the hands of these thieves. In war, you know this, Padre, the fate of battles is uncertain, and whom could I leave here to act for me in case of defeat? The explosives are ready, but it would require a man of high honour, of intelligence, of judgment, of courage to carry out the prepared destruction. Somebody I can trust with my honour as I can trust myself. Another old officer of Paez, for instance, or, or perhaps one of Paez's old chaplains would do.
He got up, long, lank, upright, hard, with his martial moustache and the bony structure of his face, from which the glance of the sunken eyes seemed to transfix the priest, who stood still, an empty wooden snuff-box held upside down in his hand, and glared back, speechless, at the governor of the mine. End of Part Third The Lighthouse Chapter 6